The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Radio Reversal is broadcast live on Brisbane Community Radio Station 4ZZZ, located on unceded Jagara and Turrbal country. If this podcast jumps about a bit at times, that's because we have edited the broadcast to remove music, news, sponsorship notices, and other features of a live radio show. To hear the full version of the show, you can access on-demand and streaming at 4ZZZ.org.au. Radio Reversal is a show subjecting aspects of everyday life to political, theoretical, philosophical, irreverent and warm-hearted analysis, produced by a diverse and fluid collective of awesome folks. For more info, find us on Twitter at Radio Reversal or facebook.com slash Radio Reversal. We acknowledge the traditional owners of this country, the Turrbal, Yagara, Jagara, Yugarapal and Kwandamuka peoples and their elders, past, present and future. Sovereignty never ceded. Mutual, 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 this is the mutual broadcasting system. As radio gets called everything from gag to gadget, but fate is to make radio a power in a world of peace and war. And the show you are listening to today is Radio Reversal. Today on the show we are going to be talking a lot about political morality and social choice. Musing on the philosophical content of some kind of a broader political economic critique. This is very much in the spirit of Radio Reversal. Good morning, Zedheads. It is eight minutes past ten, and you are tuned to Four Triple Z and Radio Reversal. Um, I'm in. I'm Nat. I'm in the studio today with Emilio and Hannah. How are we doing? Hey, you good? Yeah, good. Yeah, we're yeah. already yeah. kind of sweaty, but yeah, good. yeah, right, yeah, totally. Um, but you know, that's just nerves and excitement for the totally rad topic we're talking about today: post-human and the Anthropocene and the Cthulhu scene and the more than... Hu- this is too many big words. Yeah, okay. it is Prom- many big words. Promise me we're going to break this down. Uh, I promise. Thank you. Thank well, you, Hannah. <laughs> we're going to make you do it now. Yeah, yeah. So. Oh, oh, okay, that's so. terrifying. Well, <laughs> before we get stuck into all of the things we are going to struggle to talk about today, um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can text us on 0420-626-733 or you can give us a call on 3252 uh, you can send us a message via facebook.com slash Radio Reversal. We are also on Twitter, so you can tweet at us at Radio Reversal. Um, and if you miss part of the show, you want to catch up later on, it'll be online. You can catch up on demand from the 4ZZZ website. Um, but, yeah, if you if you have any song requests, uh, broadly speaking, about these questions of, of the post-human, the transhuman, the more-than-human, anything human plus or unhuman, uh, please or post to the inhuman. Facebook group. Or inhuman. Okay, that's the more conventional <laughs> for that. Yep, thank you for that, Hannah. I quite liked unhuman. Unhuman. Well, in, it yeah. could be both. Uh, yeah, okay. Un- or and or in. either or. Yeah. yeah. Or, or. Or, uh, this is what we're talking about today. <laughs> but, so a couple of weeks ago, you two did a show yes. on the Anthropocene. We did. Right. Yeah, with Joe, we, we, yeah, we talked quite a lot about the Anthropocene and about the more than human, but we felt that there was rather a lot that we only... Like yeah. started to crack the surface of so of the iceberg that yeah. Well, yeah. Plus, plus, yeah. Nat's been deeply reading this week yeah. <laughs> a book that we we may have mentioned in that last show, but we'd love to go into in more detail, which is Donna Haraway's "Staying with the Trouble." Yes. So, 
Um, yes, I That's think gonna there'll be, be a bit of that. Yeah. But can you maybe recap for people who amazingly did not tune in two weeks yeah. ago to Radio Reversal? Outrageous. Yeah. Can and didn't find the time to catch up. I oh. mean, my God. Um, so maybe what is the Anthropocene for anyone what? who wasn't listening a couple of weeks ago? Okay, guys, I got this. Yeah. Uh, so... Over the last week or so, I've been actually like writing the scientific kind of background on the Anthropocene, so I can tell you a little bit about that, and Do then it. we can go into the theory. So, so, um, essentially, the Anthropocene was kind of this idea that was uh, floored up in about 2000 by this uh, Nobel-winning chemist, and... Then they established this working group in 2009, the Anthropocene Working Group, who's been like investigating whether or not the Anthropocene counts as a chronostratigraphic or geochronologic unit, which means... Wait, new big words. Yeah, oh, no, I know, <laughs> guys. And these ones are science ones. Um, okay, so essentially, whether or not uh, the idea of the Anthropocene is really tangible as a, a layer of uh, geology mm. um, and whether it's global enough to count as its own new layer and is enough of an impact to change from the Holocene. Right. And I think the findings that they had were that it is. Uh, so they presented that to some big geology conference in South Africa this year. Uh, and so it's kind of in the process of whether or not it's real uh, being... I don't know how they do that. Yes, I think they like say. Like from scientific no. consensus? Yeah. Is that how we're deciding yes, whether or not science. we're in the Anthropocene? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Imagine big scare quotes around the word science, <laughs> I think, just to convey the, the look on Amelia's face when she says science. Um, yeah, so this is really interesting because I feel like the Anthropocene, I mean, I, I did um, an environmental studies degree like many years ago and I feel like when I started it, mm. it was just kind of, yeah, this is where we're at. We're in, we're in the Anthropocene. It seemed like it was you know, almost accepted that we were maybe 10 years ago and now, but mm. now we're getting to a point of like it being recognised by the scientific community at a geological level. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. But uh, beyond that, it's kind of, uh, and what we're going to go into, I mm. think, is the pop culture aspects of it or where it came from pop culture and how it's kind of branched out into all these different areas of thinking. Yeah, cool. Yeah. And of course the, you know, the the fun critical social scientists seem to have already moved on from the Anthropocene, right? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. So like, now we're talking about so old, old school. Yeah, yeah <laughs> totally. So got to have something new to write about. So now we're talking like the Capitolocene mm. and the Catullocene. Mhm. Mm yeah. Do you want to give us uh, definitions of those or do we wait for later? Well, I think I think the broad brush of Capitalocene would be basically attributing, acknowledging, I guess, that the Anthropocene is not something that ev that all humans have equally contributed to. Mm. That actually some humans have had far more of an impact than others, and it's been those humans perhaps um, who wield most power under the political economic system of capitalism. So instead, mm -hmm. attributing the changes at this big global level not so much to the actions of people more to the actions of the systems created by these people mm. um, and yeah so I guess it's maybe just repositioning blame a little bit yeah. to talk about the capitalocene realistic blame though I mean, yeah, like I, I think it's I think it's totally fair blame. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah. But it's less physical than it's more about the systems that are in place. Whereas the Anthropocene kind of implies that it's the actual human impact with hands and trucks. Yeah, yeah. I guess that, that's like to do with the way capitalism is treated as though it's an actual thing, an indisputable fact. <laughs> and so mm. um, and, and the physical uh, impact that that is ha having on the environment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, 
And then the Cthulhu scene. Yeah. So much more fun. This sounds more like <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, this is, and I'll, I'll read something a little bit later. Um, yeah, we this, delve in this, with, will, this is this the will overview. This will need more than just a simple definition. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but basically the Cthulhu scene is a way of thinking about where we're at um, and where we want to be through these tentacular assemblages. Oh, right? tentacular. Tentacular. Great mm. word, hey? Tentacular, so spectacular great. word. Um, tentacular. <laughs> where basically it's about, it's it's a way of thinking about this new scene, mm. C-E-N-E, um, as more than human. So it's about understanding this this assemblage mm. and bringing bringing all of these other more than human beings and and non-beings like there's there's also I think we're going to talk a little bit today about um about vibrant matter mm. and about the kind of um abiotic elements of the more than human so mm. like things that we might think of as um not alive um, how we can gather them up with our tentacles into the more than human Cthulhu scene. Yes. Making yes. together. Yes. Yeah. Making, becoming with. Yeah. Be- yeah. Becoming with. Yeah. Mm. Removing humans maybe from the very centre of the image. Or not, not so much removing, but uh, just saying that humans are not there by themselves. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but without, like, wanting to... Um, I think it's... Without wiping yeah. free of blame. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> yeah, oh, hang right. on to the blame. <laughs> Stay with the trouble, as Donna Haraway would yeah. tell us. <laughs> we're continuing. It's like part two of our little discussion on the Anthropocene, uh, where we're going to focus a little bit more on the more than human, um, where we're going to talk about the post-human the transhuman and the Cthulhu scene. Mm-hmm. So basically it just it's gonna get really messy and gooey and composty all up in here. Humusy. Right? Yeah, humusy, yes. We are not homos, we are humus. This is what da- Donna Haraway tells us. We are <laughs> all decomposing into one another all of the time. Okay. Which given how humid it currently feels here in Brisbane, that seems about right. Oh yeah. Yeah. So we were uh, talking about the Anthropocene and how we kind of got to this point in the scientific community where there seems to be a growing consensus that it is geologically a thing. Yes. Yes. Right. (laughs) Um, But at the same time, of course, um, the critiques about this way of thinking are also starting to come out. Right. And so what are the, I suppose, if we start to think about ourselves as living in the Anthropocene, what kind of behaviour, what kind of politics, what kind of actions is that going to take us down? Um, and is that necessarily what's going to be helpful for addressing the gigantic problems we are all facing? Mm. So, critiques of the Anthropocene. So I think one of the real big ones is definitely the idea of human exceptionalism. Right. Um, what's that? Uh, the idea that humans are exceptional, <laughs> I think, would be the most straightforward <laughs> definition. <laughs> like, exceptional <laughs> as a species? Yeah. 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 A standalone from other animals, you know, in mm-hmm. charge of changing the earth, essentially mm-hmm. making ourselves earth stewards. Right. Uh, which is a whole other environmentalist thingy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but I think that one of the main critiques that comes up with human exceptionalism is that it kind of, uh, and, and that stewardship thing, I guess, is that it kind of gives way to this idea that humans have made this mess and now they can clean it up, but using the same technologies or you know using uh. using their abilities and the stuff that they've kind of um created and applying that in a way that fixes it which kind of like gives way to this kind of technophilic way of dealing with 
all of the issues, uh, yeah. like geoengineering kind of stuff, like seeding the clouds, yeah. and thinking about how to um, deal with climate change by adding more stuff right. to the world. Yeah. So I think, yeah, like I think I first was introduced to this kind of idea through the lens of ecological modernization, right. which is the idea that um, it kind of was... Um, yeah, almost like like an economics theory, I suppose, more than anything else, which is a way, an idea that we can decouple production from the extraction and consumption of natural resources. So we can extract, mm. so we can find new ways to produce that are sit lighter ecologically on the earth without kind of fundamentally transforming our economic and political systems. So we can just um, find cleaner ways to produce and consume without necessarily tackling any of the structures wait is this your definition of human exceptionalism or is this uh well this is this is the theory this is ecological modernization but i think i think it it plays really closely in with human exceptionalism because Mm -hmm. i think it's the idea that um we are smart enough to overcome the limits of the earth with enough Mm. tech you know but it also um kind of prioritizes a uh individual power Mm. that maybe yeah maybe does not exist like this kind of especially especially uh being able to control bigger systems and the damage that they do through individual consumption mm. um yeah as a if if only everybody just did this thing <laughs> yeah right. as a yeah which which uh sees yes yeah, sees a kind of power lying with individuals and and also uh like um yeah, individuals <laughs> yeah. as a collective kind of thing. In order well, to, like if but everybody it's got, does it's this gotta thing, be, but it's got to be everyone acting as individuals. That's, right, that's the the kind of idea that we like can't grocery bags made yeah. of paper. Yeah, yeah right. So like the idea that Green our salvation consumerism. will lie in in becoming better capitalists, becoming more entrepreneurial, mm. becoming innovative, becoming change mm-hmm. makers, mm-hmm. Um, and all of those completely nonsense words but they do make us feel better right because because it it's kind and, of and they also work at making you feel bad if you are not like things. slip yeah. up and <laughs> i don't have a bag i have to take this plastic bag yes um <laughs> exactly always. if you are yeah <laughs> yeah totally so i guess then if the so one of the main critiques of the anthropocene then is that it still comes back to this idea of human exceptionalism that right still we have the capacity people, to do the change. Yes, and it puts people at the top of an apex and mm. arguably it's that kind of apex thinking, that hierarchical thinking, mm. that exceptionalist thinking that has gotten us un- into this mess Complete in the first mess place. Complete mess yeah, yeah. yeah, right. like yeah. gross environmental degradation, gross social inequality. Um, so the idea that we can just preserve the system and just swap out some of the parts is maybe flawed. So this is a critique yeah. of the anthropocentric way, of the Anthropocene as a way of thinking. It's kind of interesting, though, because it kind of speaks to that idea that, oh, you know, that kind of cultural concept that science is our saviour, you know, moving away from that religious kind of culture into a a new science as God type thing. Or, Or like maybe that's a bit old hat now, but, you know. Well, I mean, maybe not. Like, I mean, we know that that like, you know, the idea of people as stewards is like firmly... Yeah, a, a Judeo kind of Christian belief. Yeah, yeah. And then maybe we can just so that kind, kind of, of adapting all of that yeah. thinking into this and just kind of piling it on science and really believing in it. Yeah, which again <laughs> is then a way to swap out a part without like fundamentally cha- challenging the underlying construct. Yeah, right? we can just swap out a Judeo Christian version of God for which science. Is totally, what I'm going to talk about in transhumanism later. Oh my god. Okay. Well, yeah. then we won't we won't foreshadow that too much. But okay. I think <laughs> I think maybe just before we get into the accommodation 
notices, which is coming up very soon. Um, I think I, I just wanted to read a short quote, which will be one of many quotes from Donna Haraway's <laughs> Staying with the Trouble um, that I will read today because I should just not be allowed near Donna Haraway, to be honest. Um, oh, no, I love it. Yeah. So she writes that one of, like, one of the main issues with the Anthropocene as a way of thinking is that it saps our capacity for imagining and caring for other worlds, both those that exist precariously now and those we need to bring into being in alliance with other critters. So I think the main problem with the Anthropocene from Haraway's perspective, which is very mm. much this Cthulhu scene more than human human perspective is that it's just a bit boring and is not going to challenge us to to find new ways to relate to each other it's not going to enable us to think about broader um, more exciting possibilities it's kind of interesting because it implies also so it's like you're talking about it as kind of an uh assemblage type thing so people Mm -hmm. and animals interrelated but also i kind of think of when you were talking that quote through i was thinking about uh matthew gandhi's work on um uh, Abney Park and how mm. there's kind of different ways of living within the park so they kind of it's this uh, urban um, jungle yeah. essentially overrun and it's used by gay men for cruising but it's yeah. also the conditions are perfect for wildlife and so there's kind of these two different uh, parallel worlds that are going on but living on top of each other and uh, you don't see one or the other depending on which one you're looking for. Yeah, yeah, Which I guess is kind of like if you expand that out, that's the worlds that she's talking about. They're not necessarily always interrelated. Or they are, but you can't see how they are. Yeah, and I think the task in in how to live and die well in the Cthulhu scene is figuring out how we can start to see some of those relations that have previously been invisible. Um, So I think next up we wanted to talk a little bit more about this idea of post-humanism. What is it... Amelia. <laughs> wow, thanks for throwing that to me. You're so Who welcome. has just stated while the music was playing that I would don't really understand it. Yeah, no, that's cool. We're, we're going we're gonna to collectively not understand this in our tentacular assemblage of not awesome. understanding things. Yes. Okay, so, all right. So I was listening to this interview with Rosie Braidotti, who is a post-human writer, mm-hmm. theorist, uh, and she was saying that um, post-humanism emerged from kind of Foucault's death of man around 1960s, uh, which was around a kind of a obliquely uh, written thing about. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Are you accusing Foucault of writing obliquely? Look, honestly, I was like, I'm going to read this. I'm going to find it for sure. And then I was like, what? What? <laughs> <laughs> Okay. And then I gave up. Death of Man in the yeah. 1960s. Right, which is actually a reference to European humanism. Okay. Death of that kind of, you know, the the white man. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, for those of you not lucky enough to be sitting across from Amelia in the studio, the look of delight on her face then was slightly terrifying. Um, but yes, so, okay, so this is kind of the death of capital M man, a yeah. death of the kind of enlightened individual human subject who was very white very western very male right which i assume kind of led into kind of the haraway type stuff which kind of went into all directions and queer theory and that kind Mm. of stuff and included people who weren't necessarily capital m man yeah right so this is like the critiques of (laughs) capital m man (laughs) Um, so this is the kind of critiques of this particular kind of strain in in philosophy right Mm. 
um, that, you know, because obviously what was happening in the 60s is we had that big emergence of critical race theory we had, um, which is not that it didn't exist before then, but where mm. it started to gain a lot more traction, was more widely known, feminist theory, queer theory, all of these things were happening. You sound so much more confident than me on this. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lie. Um, <laughs> yeah, and so now we have this, if, if we are losing that particular subjectivity, um, of that that capital M man, mm-hmm. what what are we what are we left with? Uh, is it the posthuman? I think is it might the be answer? the posthuman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this is an exam now. Yeah. 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 Oh God. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Some bacteria. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're left with bacteria and the posthuman. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So <laughs> posthumanism then is what like a new understanding of subjectivity. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It just sounds like it's kind of everything. Oh, well, that's not useful. No, it's really unhelpful. Yeah. Um, yeah. Isn't it just kind of the start of just thinking through assemblages and, and, and kind of disrupting the way that we think about things? And yeah. But there's also this new strand to it, right, as well, which we'll talk about in a bit of the transhuman. So is transhuman right. like... Do we think of transhuman? Is it a branch of posthumanism, or does it sit like alongside? I can't figure out quite how that sits together. Yeah, because it seems actually quite dissonant. It's messy. It's yeah. messy. Cool. I mean, is it? Should we say briefly what is transhumanism at this point then as well? Yeah. Okay. So it's kind of this idea. Uh, it's kind of about human. It's it's taking that human exceptionalism and kind of keeping people at the center. Yeah. Um, and really thinking through technologies and ways of kind of enhance enhancing the human and uh, augmenting the human mm. as assemblage but not really thinking of it as assemblage in the equal sense mm. kind of like recentralizing right. people mm. is my understanding yeah. of the transhuman e- like extending the human yeah really. thinking yeah. through like post-human in terms of like what literally is going to happen to people in the future mm. yeah okay so it's more like it's more like a disruption of the capital M man by bringing these other things into what it is to be human. Yeah. Or like blurring the boundaries of what it is to be human in the kind of cyborg things where maybe we'll yeah. have like, maybe we'll have objects as or part of gen- it. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. it's also kind of now, right? Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like some of those runners um, in the Paralympics mm. yeah. with those amazing feet. Yeah, I think that counts as post and transhuman. I mean, well, I'm convinced. Even, I mean, I have an IUD. Yeah. So oh well, totally. Yeah. That's <laughs> the example. I, I am a woman, do. but have no periods. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I have a I have a tiny device inside of me. Yeah. I think that makes me a cyborg. Yeah. Arguably, even wearing glasses makes you a cyborg. Well, that's true. Because it is yeah. like technology that you wear to shape how you're able to interact with the world. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think it kind of mm, also connects into clothes. this, like, oh, clo- yeah, 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 clothes technology. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> me considering that. Yeah, yeah. Just make the thinking noises. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, but no, I think it also evokes that kind of science fiction future type yeah. thinking mm. uh, and, and like what the next stage is. So it's kind of like thinking, yes, about enhancements now, but also thinking in the future and being like, ooh, what's yeah. going to happen? So, so I guess then like transhumanism as a movement might be post-human and might be doing the more than human thing but also not necessarily mm. does that seem fair yeah i think mm. so yeah i think it's doing a branch of it that's not super effective it's kind of i mean don't know if you guys watch orphan black but it's like yeah. the neolution kind of idea oh, of like yeah enhancing the human yeah it's kind of that's where it gets a bit scary because it's kind of eugenical right yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah so like yeah. this this like directed 
directed evolution informed by technology mm. um, or genetic engineering of some kind, which, yeah, is getting into creepy eugenics oh, territory yeah, pretty eugenics. quickly. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Eugenics. That's a thing. <laughs> I, I do no. have... Oh, oh, go on. No, go. Uh, before you move on, can I just be, go back to that uh, idea of the religion? Yes. Because I think that one of the things that I think of, which is probably divulging too much about myself, is that because I'm like very atheist, but I'm, I'm friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I've kind of like developed this weird idea that I'm going to become a cyborg in the future. Like, cool. Because yeah. you know, there's that fear of death, and there's nothing to overcome it now because there's nothing to believe in. You're just going to like compost. Yeah. And so, like, my head has clung to this idea of transhumanism. And like that's my future, right? So transhumanism as <laughs> salvation, the ability yeah. to download what it is to be Amelia onto a memory stick. Exactly, right? Yeah. So before we played that track, we um, I read a quote from um, Stephanie Fischel, kind of defining posthumanism as. Um, an acknowledgement that it's not like humanism is a moment that we have moved past, that it's it's kind of a way of, of trying to bring into um, what it means to be human all of these other things and mm. to disrupt that um, that idea of the, yeah, like the, the capital M male enlightenment liberal human subject. Um, but I think what's what she sort of hints at in that quote, and she does talk about in a little bit more depth um, in her book, and I think it's really important to acknowledge that, you know, when we're talking about the post-human I think it's really important to recognise that not everyone is kind of treated or included in that category of human mm. who we would, you know, normally consider to be human, mm. right? Like, we know that there are people who are treated, whose lives are treated as expendable as being less than human, who are exploited and um, subjected to violence that, that we would call inhuman. Mm, yeah. And that's only kind of tenable because they're treated as less than. And that's always been part of the Enlightenment project, right? Yeah. yeah. So you were talking a little bit about justice as a concept in terms of the post-human. Well, I, I suppose it's more like how. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how we do it. Right? Like mm. it's it's the same thing when when you look at I think critiques of like human rights discourses and things like that, where it's like on the one hand there's lots of really valid critiques to be made, and mm. and humanism is obviously um, limiting and and is working in service of these other systems that are very destructive. Um, but I suppose. How do we how do we make those critiques, whilst also acknowledging that um, these claims to humanism, these claims to being I am also human, these mm. claims to being um, yeah I deserve the same you know like I'm as equally human as you, do really important social justice kind of work. Like it's an important advocacy yeah. project. So it feels a bit rich to say to say to people who are campaigning on this idea of trying to expand who gets to be included in human to include. Um, you know, particularly, you know, the bodies of people of colour, incarcerated people, Indigenous mm-hmm. peoples, um, to then be like, oh, yeah, but, like, we're, we're post-human now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, totally. yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of like we move straight past all humans into just, like, everything. Yeah, yeah. And it was even, you know, like this this critique of, um, you know, like I, I saw um, on Twitter, you know, which is where I get a lot of my information, um, <laughs> that, um, you know, this idea about robots being granted you know, human rights. Yeah. And it's like, well, on the one hand, I mean, that, that's interesting because, you know, I'm concerned about how we might be exploiting our robot, you know... Um, friends. Friends, Brethren. colleagues, comrades, <laughs> um, as they develop AI and, and all these things. But also... Um, there's a whole heap we of could, humans yeah, who are not living with human treats rights. Yeah. Humans a bit better too. Yeah. 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 And I mean I suppose like none of these things should be mutually exclusive, right? Like we should be able to do more than one thing at once. Yeah. 
but nevertheless <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know, we could like you know bring some people off Manus Island into <laughs> into our country <laughs> yeah 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 exactly yeah. yeah yeah so I think it's it is yeah it's, it's a tricky conversations to be having because I um yeah I mean I'm really on board with the critique that um that we you know as from an environmental perspective from a social justice perspective it's really important that we can mm. you know sort of break down these ideas and and consider ourselves as part of this like thrumming assemblage of mm. of other beings and we need to be thinking about our responsibilities to to each other and other beings which maybe we're better able to do through a post-human lens but also we probably need to hang on to the fact that yeah there are there are people stranded on on Manus Island and there are you know like that's still a thing that is happening yeah there are still people incarcerated in terrible conditions yeah you know these are yeah I'm kind of thinking through an idea. Okay. <clears throat> so, uh, ecofeminism mm. is an idea that I reacted really negatively towards when I first encountered it. Totally. And I think that maybe it was a little bit because of this kind of justice idea. And I didn't like the kind of association, automatic association with women and the environment as kind of like a single yeah. continuous entity. Uh, which, yeah, I think it's the same thing. Like, I wanted to mm. be recognised as human as yeah. opposed to just part of the world or, you know. I Yeah, totally. I think that's why I had vis- a visceral reaction when mm. I kind of, like, first encountered the ideas before I kind of got more into, you know, the complicatedness of what it is. Yeah. But, yeah, 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 yeah. I get Absolutely. what you're saying. Yeah. So, I don't know. I mean, I don't think there's... I don't think there's <coughs> yeah, it also yeah. kind of feeds into both ecofeminism and some of the language around post-humanism can feed into the same kind of... Uh, misanthropy that you see in like both environmental and like vegan movements and Mm. things like this which you know can actually like actively hating on humans yeah 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 (laughs) you know in favor of animals or or this uh, this idea of a perfect environment which yeah which both of which are um i mean in the case of animals it's it's a lot of um uh, anthropomorphism yeah and mm. in the case of the environment it's this kind of putting it up on a pedestal as something perfect without yeah. like it, yeah. it's, it's always a complex interaction right there's yeah. it's, and and I think yeah it's it's striking a balance between um, humans being a big part of the image but not mm. the whole part of the image yeah. <laughs> which I think like um, slides into I think maybe one more point we wanted to make um, before we wrap up this hour which is this idea of monism mm. um, yeah. because I think some of what we see here is also we can see that extreme misanthropy and then we can also see like the complete erasure of, like the response to human exceptionalism as being actually completely erasing humans as being having any particular thing that is human or that might give us more responsibility mm. yeah. so monism Monism, which yeah. is a word I just encountered recently. Yes. Uh, listening to that interview. Uh, but it's kind of, yeah, the idea that we're kind of all made of the same matter. So um, when we're speaking about these technological enhancements and we're thinking of them as artificial matters, mm-hmm. then if you kind of start to think about how they're created, where they come from, you know, they come from the earth, they're extracted, we all come from stardust, we're yeah. all the same matter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just, yeah I mean, similarly <laughs> with like natural foods and yeah this idea of this dis- distinction between what's natural and what's right exactly yeah. man-made yeah, yeah. Like we're all like protons neutrons and electrons yeah right that's all kind of come from the same fire yeah and by making things that are man-made not natural 
yeah we're kind of differentiating these things that are not actually different because they're yeah. all the same and and also just kind of like labeling if it's man-made it's bad and if it's yeah. natural it's good there's still plenty of poisons for instance that are natural so it's yeah it's yeah mm. yeah so yeah i think think this idea of monism maybe we'll um we'll get stuck into um a little bit after deadlines which are coming up on us super fast but yeah i think i think the idea of moving post-human by thinking about how we're all um the same there's also some tricky things there i think politically mm. which we'll which yeah. we'll talk about about monism Mm. right so post-humanism and the more than human as is usually talked about tends to be talking a lot about animals and Mm. critters so even like donna haraway talks a lot about critters which just animals also like microbiomes living yeah like things like yeah like (laughs) plants and and microbes and Mm. yeah yeah Mushrooms. There's lots of talk about mushrooms. Oh, mushrooms. Yeah. yeah. Fungus. So fungus. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But like the biotic mm. part yeah. of the more than human. But of course, if we're going to really get serious about the more than human, which we are, so <laughs> serious, um, we have we to also... move beyond both anthro, anthropocentrism. <laughs> I always have yeah. so much oh, trouble. Such a hard and biocentrism. Exactly. Oh, I like yeah. That. So mm-hmm. we need to like challenge the biocentrism in the more-than-humanism that is challenging the anthropocentrism. <sighs> is anyone else tired? Yeah, Wait, that seems I'm just like trying to yeah. get my head around that one. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so to do this, um, I had a bit of a look at a fantastic book by Jane Bennett called Vibrant Matter. Which I've been getting a bit stuck into as well. Yes. Um, so Jane Bennett basically poses the question, like, does life only make sense as one side of a life-matter binary? Or is there such thing as mineral or metallic life mm. or a life of the it in it reigns? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, right? So, yeah. so, look, I'm already feeling, as a musician, yes. that maybe we even need to move beyond atoms and get just to waves. Oh, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and Bennett does. Like, Bennett yeah, talks sure. about... Yeah. Like words or language, and and yeah, I think music would definitely be be part of this vibrant yeah. matter, right? Yeah, yeah, because f- well, that's the vibrancy of the matter, right? The, the yeah. movement, the yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, that's a cool thought. So yeah, that so this thing that we think of as having life is perhaps better thought about if we want to be like not biocentric about it um, as being vital I think is the word that that Mm. tends to be Mm. used um, vital or vibrant Um, and yeah once we once we think about that we can yeah potentially extend it to things that are abiotic Mm. Um, Bennett has um, a whole chapter where she talks about metal and, and trying to kind of understand how we can understand metal to to be included in this assemblage of vibrant matter Mm. Um, and she says um, because basically I think she's kind of acknowledging that this is actually just really super hard to understand Mm. like it's at at an embodied level it's really hard to understand how we could like imbue this table that we are sitting around as um, being having a kind of vitality and vibrance and even agency to it beyond its uh colonies of bacteria yeah yeah exactly but also beyond its uh own 
history and its place within history. It's about yeah, it yeah, an and object, its relation to the humans. About, that, yeah, yeah, not about what it's done and what it is doing. Yeah, yeah. So a vitality separate from our experience of it or yeah. production of it. But of course, then that gets really complicated too, because I think a whole heap of the work in assemblage theory and in, and in the more than human is about that we're never anything unless we're con- like we're always being constituted by our relationships with oh, others. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So That's basically active network theory as well, right? Yeah. I know you hate Latour, but... <laughs> <laughs> we might have to talk about Latour. <laughs> but no, so I just wanted to read this quote real quick um, because basically when I read it, it just made me... I was just like, oh, so I don't, I don't actually have to understand this is what I took out of this quote. So if, that, if, you're, <laughs> if you're currently feeling a bit, what on earth are they talking about? Take <laughs> comfort in what I'm about to read to you from Jane Bennett's book. Here, the vital materialist can invoke a theory of relativity of sorts. The stones, tables, technologies, words and edibles that confront us are as confront us as fixed, are mobile, internally heterogeneous materials whose rate of speed and pace of change are slow compared to the duration and velocity of the human bodies participating in and perceiving them. Objects appear as such because their becoming proceeds at a level or speed below the threshold of human discernment. Mm. So basically, uh, we're just moving too fast mm. for the table. The table's moving too slow for us. Mm. So for us to fully understand the ways it is becoming. <sighs> Which is interesting because yeah. then if we were th- to think of waves, they're like, you know, light waves and mm. sound waves. They're moving too fast for us. Yeah. 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 So maybe it's like we oh, can yeah. recognise the... We can recognise how, the, I suppose, like the agency or the vitality of the things that kind of share a pace with us or share a temporality mm. with us. We can kind of maybe begin to grok onto that. But for yeah. something that feels so abstract as metal or a table or something, maybe it's maybe I just can't. I'm not sure if I can grasp it in, in terms of the, um, the table and the metal. Or I, to a degree, but... Um, this this idea of the speed, the mm. the relative speeds, is is very interesting. There's um yeah, uh, actually going back to the sixties, there's a musical movement that kind of emerged around the sixties called or a bit later called spectralism, which was based on technology developing that could do spectral analyses of sounds and and mm. see what sounds sound waves a sound was like consisted of. So you'd get these graphs with, I mean, you might have seen kind of visualizers of sounds and as it gets more dense or um, often a low sound will be a very dense uh, coloured thing that will appear Mm. that continues right up your screen even though you can't really perceive necessarily a high sound as part of that it still is part of the sound Mm. Um, and there was one particular French composer Gérard Griset who wrote quite a lot about uh, rather he had been called a spectralist despite kind of using this technology to find different ways of thinking of the sound but he tended to think about it in terms of speed and Mm. in terms of um so he liked to be called a liminal composer he wanted to be working with the uh kind of limits of human perception of of sound and and the speeds of sound and he uh talked about some things happening at the speed of insects and some things happening at the speed of the whale not just always at the speed of a human um and so like he saw himself as spacing sound out uh, sort of semi-artificially by getting instruments to play components of a sound and so this is kind of like spelling out the sound like the time Mm. of a whale Mm. or things like being very condensed and happening very quickly and yeah 
So <laughs> that's the, mm. that was kind of part of his way of thinking his music. It's kind of interesting. It's yeah. very similar to, you know, like the LIGO experiments that have been happening, no. detecting gravitational waves. Mm. So is technology. Like they hundreds of scientists banding together to kind of figure out these more and more um, uh, good <laughs> instruments. An uh, eloquent trio. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think of that word. Like like trying to detect like more and more subtle things. Yeah. Uh, so they're building these bigger and more elaborate structures to mm. be able to just find these tiny, tiny vibrations mm. that otherwise we wouldn't know existed. But when we're talking about time... Mm. I also think about coal mm. because it goes through a transformation. Mm. And so I don't know whether it kind of qualifies in the right, the right way as vibrant matter, but, you know, going from that plant um, and kind of becoming sediment and then turning into something else, which is essentially geology, a rock. Yeah. That it kind of happens over a geologic time period mm. that's not perceptible to humans and we only see it as one part of that object. Mm. Whereas and, it's got this whole life. perceive it at, in terms of its usefulness to us, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, that's a whole other thing. Yeah, maybe yeah. like, and, and you know, m- maybe this comes back to this basic idea about, um, you know, the the unsustainable, um, for want of a better word, consumption of resources that give us the Anthropocene is just maybe like a complete disregard for the temporal. Yeah, that's actually really something that stresses me out. It's like, what about... These things are fossils. Why can't Mm. we just respect them as fossils? Yeah, totally. (laughs) There's this kind of perception that the dinosaurs and all of those plants died just so that humans today could have, yeah, you know, fast and cheap power. (laughs) Well, I mean, (laughs) they anticipated it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, super generous of them, really. Uh But, I mean, I think... I I guess the question that this brings me to, though, is... um, is how we know these things. So, like, we've got mm. these increasingly precise and sensitive instruments that we can use to try and know gravitational waves, for instance. Yeah. Um. <sighs> <laughs> like this, but there must be so many things beyond our perception that we can never perceive. Yeah, and I and I suppose it's also like how, and I guess this is in the more extreme forms of posthumanism and monism. If we are completely ab- trying to abstract the human, I mean, it's still a human knower, right? Mm. Like, it's still yeah, us we, trying it, to perceive and understand the music. Yeah, always the thing. But we can never yeah. separate ourselves from that, right? Yeah. 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 Except, you know, these theories are telling us that we are, that that separation is not real. You know, that, mm. that we are all, always already this, like, lively assemblage yeah. of things that are thinking this with us. We are our microbiome. We are. I, I don't know. Like Which all, I think is why tools. people cling to that creature in the bi- microbiota or the, the biotic because it's so much easier to conceptualise because it is closer to the human. Yeah. Like we really have trouble with this vital materialism because it is so mm. separate and there's no way to anthropomorphise it. Well, see, I think, yeah, I think the anthropomorphism thing is really interesting because I, I was reading some... Yeah, so I think, like, the critique of, of trying to do more than human research and be like, I'm going to try and think through things with this loon or I'm going to try and um, <laughs> think through things with this table. I'm going to try and, like, do this, do this. And, I mean, honestly, there's been a lot of, like, quite interesting philosophical work done thinking with, with tables, you know, phenomenological work, thinking thinking with tables. Mm. But it's still, you know, I think the common critique is that, yeah, well, it's still a human subject, still a human knower seeking to know these things. Yeah. 
Um, and that's just anthropomorphism because you can't actually know how a table feels. You can't actually know how a loon feels. Right. So uh, a loon yeah. is a kind of bird, if you were wondering. Okay, yeah. yes. Also, <laughs> yes, th- th- thank you. Yes, a loon is a kind of bird. Um, <laughs> but I think th- I, mm. so you've written here that vitality is the word that Bennett uses instead of agency. Well, and I, I think, think so, maybe, yeah. <laughs> well, she, I mean, she doesn't say agency, right? So I think she's talking about... Yeah, no, I yeah. think you're right. Oh, yay. But, like, oh, no, I've lost my train of thought. Sorry. I was so... Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I think, yeah, it's... I think, because, yeah, like, like Bennett does take on this, this, this accusation... Well, not this accusation, this critique of anthropomorphism. And I think it's kind of there in Donna Haraway's work as well, which, you know, in many ways could also be, you know, critiqued for being anthropomorphic in, in how she describes her relationships, particularly mm. with her dog, Cayenne. Yeah. Um, but I think, I mean, maybe that's just fine. Like... Yeah. Yeah. Like may- maybe, I mean. Maybe that's just how we can do it. Yeah. And, may- and maybe it's like if we acknowledge, you know, maybe this trying to, engaging this project of trying to do it is going to open up new possibilities and new ways of living and dying together. Yeah. On its own, even if it's not right. Like even if it's not, we're not actually knowing what a table feels, the project mm. of trying to think with a table will make other kinds of being possible. Mm. Maybe. Trying to think about how you think with a table. I, I don't know how you think with a table. Um, yeah. Uh, Herschel thought with a table. Sarah Ahmed has thought with a table. Those are phenomenologists who take the table yeah. as the object of their inquiry and the table thinks back at them. But I want to become with the table. You want to become with the table. I want to, yeah. Well, well you, you already like, are. Aren't yeah. humans doing quite a lot of that? We all have kind of creaks and creaks in our back now from sitting at desks for so long. That's oh, true. Yeah. <laughs> We've yes. been becoming with the table for a long time. Maybe yeah. the table just like is in a lot of pain from not moving. And maybe this is how we can understand the agency of the table. It's um yeah. just it's angry at us and so is giving us back pain. Maybe we idolize the table and try to be as static as it. Right. Yeah. They yeah. Are human bodies are yeah. failures. Oh, that's just like oh what's that I had Huckabees at the beginning like yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. This rock just sits <laughs> and is. Yeah. But I mean, so maybe this is it. Like maybe the project is turning these things that we treat as objects. Like when we're talking about the abiotic world in new materialism or in this more than humanism, we're trying to turn things that we treat as objects and just imagine them to have a subjectivity. Mm. subjectivity. And we will probably get that wrong and the contours of that very wrong, Mm. but in imagining them to have a subjectivity, maybe we're doing something that's important. We wanted to talk a little bit more about the Cthulhu scene, which... Um, we sort of forecast at the at the top of the show as this um, kind of critical response to the Anthropocene and the Capitalocene and their kind of conceptual dimensions and the the kinds of ways to think that are available to us if we're thinking th- thinking from the standpoint of the Anthropocene or the Capitalocene. Um, so Donna Haraway offers instead the Cthulhu scene, and I think probably the important. Um, thing here is that Donna Haraway writes quite frequently that um, it matters what matters we think other matters with, it matters what stories we use to tell other stories. Mm-hmm. Um, the kind of, the ideas and frameworks that we gather up to think with us, to think through these things matter in her estimation. So um, 
So she gives us, she offers us the Cthulhu scene. And um, rather than try and sum it up poorly, I'm just going to um, quote from her very delightful book, um, from her very delightful self. She writes, The Catonic ones are not confined to a vanished past. They are a buzzing, stinging, sucking swarm now. And human beings are not in a separate compost pile. We are humus, not homo, not anthropus. We are compost, not post-human. Specifically, unlike either the Anthropocene or the Capitalocene, the Cthulhu scene is made up of ongoing multi-species stories and practices of becoming with in times that remain at stake, in precarious times, in which the world is not yet finished and the sky has not fallen. Yet. We are at stake to each other. Unlike the dominant dramas of the Anthropocene and Capitalocene discourse, human beings are not the only important actors in the Cthulhu scene, with all other beings simply able to react. The order is re-knitted. Human beings are with and of the earth, and the biotic and abiotic powers of the earth are the main story. However, the doings of situated, actual human beings matter. It matters with which ways of living and dying we cast our lot, rather than others. <sighs> I, I, I love her. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's that maybe responds to that critique that we were talking about, about... Um, you know, the dangers maybe in, in over-collapsing these categories to a point where it becomes really hard to think about how we do useful yeah, you work. Yeah, you don't get let off the hook. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's still like, yep, humans are part of it, but also we need to think about how we are. And something else that I don't have the exact quote with me, but she writes about how, I, I think to this, speaking back maybe to this idea of monism and the idea that if we're constantly thinking about ourselves as all part of a goo, um, that it becomes really hard to think about how to work and live. Mm. Um she says that... And, it, and, it, and it's hard to think about the specific interaction. Yeah, and that's, yeah. What, she, that's what she puts forward, that, yeah. like, yes, that's, that's all the case, but actually proximity matters, and it matters who you are having most relations with, and then the patterns of those relations matter. And so those, those immediate, proximate, kind of um, embodied enmeshments that are very close to us can then be subject to kind of political, social, economic, critical analysis mm-hmm. and then targeted for action in a way that you kind of can't do if you just let it all totally decompose and spread itself out evenly. I think the Cthulhu scene is clumpy and we need to look at the clumps. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Clumpy yeah. and tentacular. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do like the image of like tentacles because there's some kind of like reaching out and touching things. Yeah. yeah. So there's there's some kind of um, yeah materiality to each each of the things that you examine. Yeah. yeah. And their relations. Yeah, and the, and that that the, the, is a kind of like it's kind of an expansive. You know, there's a lot of lip, things that have tentacles have lots of tentacles. Yeah. So it's there's a lot that you can bring in. Mm. You can um, touch more than one thing at the same time. Yeah, there's a lot you can bring into that assemblage, but it's um, still going to be, I don't know, eight things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I think I don't know. What are your thoughts on this? Because Haraway like uses when she's talking, elaborating on this idea of the Cthulhu scene and on the more than human and on these these messy vital assemblages. Um, as being the sort of subjects for how we should think about how we can um, live and die better together. Um, 
she uses like yeah she uses tentacular like tentacled things like um you know obviously octopi and squid she also writes about spiders and mm. so i think like why do we think she might be using these particularly creepy crawly things that i think are more likely to give a visceral reaction right like they're a bit mysterious they're a bit scary there's something like vaguely threatening they're about these things they're these a bit alien things. yeah they yeah. come across as a little bit alien they're a bit other yeah know, or maybe as other as you can get while still being a creature yeah yeah mm. totally Especially yeah i mean things. yeah they're quite often I'm just thinking of a few pop culture references recently that have used kind of octopi like alienish figures i mean stranger things used a kind mm. of um mm. yeah this this big smoke monster but definitely tentacled i think insects and sea monsters yeah are often used for inspiration for mm. science fiction as well like ship designs and yes things. Yeah. Is it just that they're like... Is it because they have that visceral reaction though as well? Yeah. Because she wants you to have that feeling? I think so. And I mean, I think maybe it's a way of like, these these are creatures that are simultaneously familiar and unfamiliar. Like Mm. they're they're earthly, Mm. but they're also like the the octopi and the squids occupy a realm that we don't know very well, like the realm of the yeah, deep that's that, true. that we don't... Yeah, so we don't really know. We know that they're there, but we don't know all that much about it. Mm. And, I mean, most... You know, we actually know extremely little about the sort of... About the... About spiders. We don't understand them. We so. don't understand them. And also, we don't actually have names for most of them. Like, yeah. oh. I remember an ecologist telling me that if you yeah, go for a, a walk in the forest... Spiders that are not... Yeah. Not categorized. Why? Cat- Is that because people don't want to study spiders because they're a bit creepy? Well, there's just, I there's mean, just there's a, a lot. lot of them. There's oh. a lot. Yeah. They just keep discovering new ones just constantly. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to get a spider named after you or something no, named after I'm you, you know, you should um, go, for, go for spiders. But <laughs> um, yeah. So I, yeah, I think it's interesting that, that these are the things that sort of get gathered up. I, mm. do, I do have a recollection. Mm. This is, you know, very unacademic, but a. <laughs> being maybe uh, preteen, and my parents agreeing to pay me a hundred dollars to wash the house. I grew up on a farm. <laughs> Washing the house required killing huge numbers of like black yeah. house spiders that just oh. would. They kind of lived in between the wooden boards of my parents' house, and um, yeah, like I'd blast them off with a with a hose, <laughs> <laughs> and I constantly had this kind of thing like this is going to go down in the history of these spiders as like the huge genocide the mm. <laughs> yeah, wow yeah it I really what those spiders talk about ne- now. yeah exactly i was i was hitler yeah <laughs> to these spiders i just like brutally killed them yes. or at least washed them under the house yeah <laughs> wow so i guess the question we're asking here is do spiders dream of a hose wielding hannah <laughs> Although, actually, this is making me think that maybe maybe the appeal of spiders is a way to think through the more than human is, um, you know, partly partly the aspects of them that are a bit dangerous yeah. um, and that they are a bit unwanted and they are a bit something that we want to clean off our homes mm. to, you know. So so this is a call to really bring them and, and hold them close. Um, they also make webs. So, like, we... Oh, so yeah. They're all, like, things were already stuck with them and That's we right. get stuck in them and we get... Maybe this is why we think these things through with spiders. Oh my god! Nine minutes Ooh, left. Quick to talk. <gasps> All things. Tell us about compost. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was I was just looking at this. Um, so this, this this idea about about 
compost seems to be a really often used analogy in thinking about the more than human. Mm. And I think it is because it is the, what is it? It's it's lively. It's a thing that's breaking down. It's nourishing. It's important. Turning into something else as well. Yeah, it's transformative. Um, I suppose it's connected with ideas about um, waste and reuse and nourishment and um, these I suppose it connects human activity to these really slow processes of like soil mm. regeneration so it's mm. seems to be a thing maybe it's also within our time yeah. scales yeah. whereas landfill yeah it's well we're also always already decomposing right? we so are yeah, yeah we are constantly decomposing and recomposing Fermenting and yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 so it's it's something that is viscerally happening yeah. inside and outside of our bodies yeah. yeah and i think um i think maybe caring like learning to care for those processes mm. um is is an action like it seems to be an uh, a thing that people posit as, as a way forward for the more than human, like as an example of a thing that you can do that will enmesh you and entire you and entangle you in these relations in that really like lived embodied daily practices kind of way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Cause obviously Donna Haraway talks about composting. Um, a beautiful book I read recently called Matters of Care by Maria Puig de la Bella Casa, who writes about um, sort of speculative ethics for a more than human world. Mm. Um, wonderful book. And she has a whole chapter on soil care and, and caring for soil and compost and, and all of these things, mm. uh, which reminded me of this this manifesto um, that I came across last year um, by Dimitri Papadopoulos. Um, it's called a manifesto for Generation M, Matters, Makers, Microbiomes, Compost for Gaia. Um, I probably won't read the whole thing because it's probably a little bit too long for that, but I might just read a few excerpts and I will post a link to the full manifesto on our Facebook page. Uh, But real quick, he writes, language, information and the virtual space were distinctive features of the previous generation. Craft, matter and the fusion of the digital and the material are the defining defining generation M, the first generation of the 21st century. Generation M makes stuff not through mass production, but by tweaking and expanding the capabilities of existing things and processes. The maker's craft, tinkering, stretching, knitting, inventing, weaving, recombining. Making starts from what is there, intensive recycling, intensive caring. Generation M lives in a terraformed earth. Climate change, toxic environments, the sixth extinction, soil degradation, energy crises, increasing enclosures of the natural cultural commons. It encounters these harmful life thresholds with responsibility for the limits of productionism. Production does not characterise Generation M's mode of life. Coexistence does. Coexistence does. Responsible terror formation. We make as we coexist in ecological spaces. Uh, Generation M is all about collaborations that create the very material conditions we live in. But these are neither collaborations between individuals or minds nor social cooperation. These are collaborations between diverse material forces of living matter and abiotic matter. Beyond the masculine and able-bodied logic of expansive productionism, making is, literally, about creating and maintaining relations and exchanges in proximity, not necessarily spatial or temporal proximity. It is about making life with other beings and material formations. The organisational principle of this mode of existence is neither the singular subject, nor the network, nor the pack, but the communities of species and things. The microbiome is a manifestation of this principle. To be invaded and to let oneself be invaded by bacterial communities, to become a host and a recipient simultaneously. Coexist, exchange, change in order to form a sustainable life. 
from the sterile environments of network society, cognitive capitalism and the knowledge economy that characterised the previous generation, to the wet, contagious involutions of interspecies and multi-material communities. That is point five mm. of a manifesto that has 21 points. Ooh. So I won't read the rest. But I think those like kind of sum up the conversations we were having. Mm. Like yeah, totally. Bringing together the biotic and the abiotic and the wet messiness but also bring like keeping us proximate keeping it about relations keeping it about exchange it's a little hopeful hmm. generation m whether m is not for millennial it is for making hmm. yeah hmm. this totally. is a thing so we have a rapid rapidly diminishing four minutes left here <gasps> final thoughts amelia on the microbiome on more than human on the cthulhu scene yeah, on post-human transhuman the thing is, right, <laughs> I really get stuck on that trans, that transfer or that transformation from monism, the idea that we're, everything's the same, to that kind of idea that we have to have this or develop this speculative ethics. Or mm. I want to understand the driver behind that and whether it is something that we have to do. It feels like it's kind of something that people have decided is a thing but you know I don't know they've decided that speculative ethics is a thing yeah like that we should be working towards something bigger than just like totally understanding all of everything Mm. and breaking it down to its smallest points Mm. yeah and I think I think maybe the line there that um, we have absolutely no time to talk about yeah. would be thinking about the difference between kind of historical materialisms in a mm. Marxist sense uh, yeah. and new materialisms in this vibrant matter sense, which will be a subject for not now. Yeah, Another that's time. a big one. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Hannah, yeah. any final thoughts? Ooh. Um, yeah, yeah, it's about, it's about striking this balance and finding... finding... Um, kind of moral framework that that allows you to think your world um and exist in your world in a way that suits you without being just an individual (laughs) does that make sense that's i think that's the point that i have difficulty with like um wanting to to go beyond the individual but also to yeah to be very aware of the you know consequences of my own life and actions yeah yeah. (laughs) Yeah, totally yeah so I suppose to wrap up uh I don't know um give your give your give your loved ones give your lively assemblages a big tentacular hug from all of us here at Radio Reversal (laughs) 